We're going to resume in John 7, if you have a Bible. Um, it's where we left off the last time, way back in the dark ages. I feel like I got a new church sometimes when I come back after three or four weeks and meet all the new folks. And I hope all of you that are new feel welcome. And uh, please forgive me if it takes me a while to uh, learn your names. I, I try to write them down. And this morning I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine names. So I'm going to forget some of those. But um, anyway, uh, we welcome each of you. We're working through the Gospel of John. All of the messages are on the church website, both in written form, which is a little more abbreviated than the audio, and because I ad lib. Um, and then the audio are on there as well. And uh, there's an outline in your bulletin. There's a printed message at both exits. You can get one now or uh, as, you, as you go out later if you'd like. We come to John 7, verse 14 to 24. I, I'm reading out of the New American Standard Bible. But when it was now the midst of the feast, and that's referring to the feast of the tabernacles uh, that occurred every fall in Jerusalem, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries it out, carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marveled. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. The uh, famous actor Cary Grant was once walking down a street when a man, uh, his eyes locked onto Grant with excitement, and he said, Wait a minute, I, I, I know who you are. Uh, don't tell me. You're, you're Rock Hut. No, no. Well, he was having trouble, so Grant finished his sentence for him and said, Cary Grant. And the man replied, No, that's not it. You're... And, he wouldn't accept the fact that he was face-to-face -face with Cary Grant, identifying himself by his own name. Uh, sometimes we don't recognize whoever it may be who's standing right in front of us. In the Gospel of John, we saw in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, that John said of Jesus, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. And so throughout the Gospel of John, John contrasts 
unbelief, those who did not receive Jesus, with belief, with those who did. Um, He wants us, of course, he wrote his gospel, as we have seen repeatedly in John 20, 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so to have saving faith in Jesus, it is crucial that you understand who Jesus truly is. Now in our text, as I said, Jesus is at the Feast of Booze in Jerusalem. It took place every fall. It would be now about six months from the fall until April in the spring at Passover when Jesus would be arrested and crucified. And so... He's at this feast, and before he shows himself publicly, he goes up kind of in secret and lays low for a while, and people are debating about him, we read in verse 12. Some said, he's a good man, but others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads people astray. And as I pointed out when we covered that, John wants us to see that neither of those options are viable. You say, well, isn't Jesus a good man? Yes, but that's not adequate. Consider this. If I were, I hope I'm a good man, not in the sense Jesus was, but a good man. But if I stood up and said, um, if you come to me and drink of me, I will give you living water that will give you eternal life, as he said to the woman in John 4. Or if I said, I am the bread of life, whoever eats of me has eternal life, as he said in John 6. Or if I said, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, you would rightly say, he is not a good man. He is a little bit off. He is a crazy megalomaniac. Something is wrong with that man. Because no mere man can make the claims that Jesus made if he is only a good man. On the other hand, Jesus was a good man, and so clearly he was not, as some in the crowd were accusing him of being, a deceiver. He spoke God's truth. And so John wants us to see that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who took on human flesh. He wants us to see, as he said, uh, we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth or as his gospel reaches a climax in chapter 20, where Thomas bows before the risen Lord and says, My Lord and my God. And that's John's goal, that all of us would come to see Jesus in his glory as Lord and God. Now John knows, however, that believing in Jesus is not the automatic response when people hear about him. There is always division. And he paints that throughout the whole gospel. Some believe in him. Some shrug their shoulders and are indifferent and walk away. And some are vehemently opposed to Jesus. And so here we see the reaction of the Jewish leaders and the crowds that had come to the feast when Jesus in the middle of the feast goes up into the temple and begins to teach. And although Jesus was And here is a summary of the whole message in one or two sentences. Jesus was sent from God. Although Jesus taught God's truth, 
Although Jesus sought God's glory and he did God's miraculous works, people did not believe in him. They rejected him because they valued the wrong things, uh, because they uh, refused to obey God, because they were legalistic hypocrites, uh, because, as I'll point out, they were under satanic influence, and because they were judging by outward appearance. Or, to shrink that all down to one more succinct sentence, although Jesus is the true and righteous one, people reject him because of their many sins. Now, sometimes in the Bible, I kind of wish that the Holy Spirit had given us more than he did, although we have to trust he gave us what we need. Here, he doesn't tell us what Jesus taught in the, in the temple. He just tells us that he taught, and he shows us the reaction of the people to Jesus' teaching. Uh, in the narrative, <clears throat> however, he gives us four solid reasons why Jesus is as he claims in verse 18, he is the true one, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So John is wanting us to see that Jesus is the true and righteous one. Now, when Jesus claims to be true, he means that all that he is, all that he embodies is true. Jesus is the truth, as he says. And there is no unrighteousness in him. And so Jesus is claiming, contrary to those who said he leads the people astray, to say, no, no, there is no deception. Jesus is the truth, and you can believe in him. Uh, Leon Morris points out that in the only other places where John says a person is said to be true, it applies to God. And so he wants us to make the connection here that Jesus shares this quality with God alone. Four facts here uh, support the fact that Jesus is the true and righteous one. First of all, Jesus is true and righteous because he was sent here by God. Uh, Jesus emphasizes that twice here in our text. In verse 16, he says, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And then again in verse 18, he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. And then he's going to mention it again down in verse 28 and 29. He says, I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him. And then again, and he sent me. Now you have to ask. And and this is not just here. It's all through the Gospel of John. It's a theme that God sent Jesus. So you have to say, why is that important? I think at least for two reasons. Number one, it shows his preexistence. All of us were born at a point in time. Jesus is eternal. He is the eternal Son of God. And so when he was born, he was coming to this earth from the Father. That's unique. The other thing it emphasizes is Jesus' authority. If I came to you direct from the White House with a message, you would say, wow, he's speaking with the authority of the president. That may not mean much, but anyway, it carries some clout. If we had a dictator or a king, it would carry more clout. Well, if Jesus 
was some sort of an upstart who just came up with his own thing, uh, then why believe him? But if he came from God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth, and spoke with the very words of God, then you better say, whoa, we had better listen to Jesus. He speaks with God's authority. And if we reject Jesus, then we are rejecting the one who sent him. A second reason that we see that Jesus is true and righteous is not only was he sent by the Father, but also because he taught God's truth. Now, we saw in our last time, Jesus did not go up to the feast with his brothers because he didn't want to make a grand entrance because the Jewish people were kind of having a messianic fervor and they thought that he might be the political deliverer who would free them up from Rome. Jesus was not that sort of deliverer. So he waits until the middle of the feast, lays low, and then he goes into the temple and he begins to teach, and a crowd quickly gathers around him. Now in verse 15, when the Jews were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? You need to understand, the Jews is John's phrase to refer to the Jewish leaders. I think that what they are saying in verse 15 is they are saying this to the crowd. Their astonishment is not that they're in awe of Jesus' great teaching, as they should have been. Um, I think, rather, they are either amazed at his audacity, that he would take on himself the authority to teach, even though he never went to their rabbinic schools, or there may be a hint there of mocking, that in mock astonishment they're saying, huh, how does this guy teach, thinking you know, that he can teach and that he's learned. He's never even been to school. He's just that, that carpenter from Galilee. And so they are trying to discredit what Jesus is saying to the multitudes in front of the multitudes to make Jesus look bad. And as we've seen, John often uses irony. Can you imagine the supreme irony? Here is the creator we saw in John 1, the word who created heaven and earth, talk about intelligence and wisdom, and these, these Jews, Jewish leaders are saying, oh, this uneducated fellow from Nazareth, he doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, it's just an amazing irony. Now, Jesus responds to their teaching, I mean to their challenge, by saying in verse 16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And so what Jesus is saying is, I don't need your degrees from your accredited rabbinic schools in order to teach because I am speaking directly from God the Father to you. In other words, my degree is in heaven. I graduated from the University of Heaven and nobody else has. And so my teaching is unique and it is authoritative as it comes to you. You know, you can go over to the university and take a course in religion, and what you end up with is the speculations of a lot of men speculating on speculations. They don't know what they're talking about. No, oh, I think God is like this. Well, I think that it's like this. And it's all a bunch of human speculation. What we need is revelation that comes from God himself. And Jesus is saying, I am such a revelation to you. My teaching is authoritative about God. I can tell you about man. I can tell you about sin. I can tell you about redemption. 
I can tell you the way of salvation because I come from God. I teach God's truth. Now, I'm going to say more on verse 17 in just a moment. But for now, uh, notice in verse 17, Jesus tells us how a person can know whether his teaching originated with Jesus or whether it comes from God. He says this, If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. That is a great verse for you to have in mind when you are sharing your faith with an unbeliever. And here's why. Most unbelievers do not know who Jesus is, and you need to tell them at some point, you know, I would challenge you to read through the Gospel of John. Okay, so far so good, but a lot of people have read through the Gospel of John, and they're still unbelievers. So here's the hook you have to put in that invitation. You say to them, as you read through the Gospel of John, tell God, God, if, if you will show me that Jesus is the truth, I'll be willing to obey you. See, you're getting at the heart of things. The reason they don't want to believe in Jesus is they want to run their own lives. They don't want Jesus to be their Lord and Master. And so say to them, if you will come to Jesus and ask God, you know, show me that Jesus is true as I read, and I will obey you. He promises here that he will. Because, you see, if they come to the Bible as a scoffer to find fault, they'll go away as a scoffer finding fault. If they come to the the Bible with a seeking heart saying, God, I know I'm a sinner. God, I know I need what you have to offer. Please show me, and I will follow you. Jesus promises they'll see. They'll see the truth. There's a third reason here that Jesus is true and righteous, and that is because he sought God's glory. Verse 18, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Jesus dwelt with the Father from all eternity in indescribable glory. When he came to this earth, he laid aside his glory, took on the form, of course, first of an infant, but then of a bondservant, and was obedient to death, even death on the cross. Paul says all that in Philippians chapter 2. But then Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended on high. He resumed the glory that he has with the Father. Remember in Revelation 1, the Apostle John sees the risen Jesus, and he doesn't walk up and say, Hey, how you doing, Lord? Good to see you. He says, I fell at his feet as a dead man. He was so glorious. John was just stricken and and fell down before him. That's the glory that he now shares. But when he was on earth, Jesus laid aside that glory, and he lived as a man in dependence on God so that he could show us all how we are to live. We are to give glory to God in dependence on him. And so Jesus is saying the test of a true teacher is if a man teaches God's truth, he seeks to glorify God. On the other hand, if a man is enamored with all of his degrees and insists that everybody call him Dr. So-and-so or Reverend Dr. This or That, uh, well, be careful. Be careful. You know, when you study God's Word, 
to teach it, there isn't a week that I think, I'm adequate for this. <laughs> if I did, I shouldn't be up here. You know, it, you, you see something of the glory of God and His majesty, and you just think, oh, woe is me. Who am I to get up and speak your holy word, God? And, and with the psalmist, you just say, Psalm 115, verse 1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. And so the test that Jesus was true and righteous is he sought God's glory. He's true and righteous because, first, he was sent here by God. Second, he taught God's truth. Third, he sought God's glory. And then, finally, Jesus is true and righteous because he did God's miraculous works. And here we're looking at verses 19 to 23. Let me read them again. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason Moses gave you circumcision, not because it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses cannot be broken, um, <clears throat> then why are you, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Let me try and explain this. What Jesus is doing here is drawing a contrast between himself and these hypocritical Pharisees. Uh, there was no unrighteousness in Jesus, and yet... Here are these Jews who boasted in the law, we keep the law of Moses, and yet they're, they're trying to violate the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. They want to kill Jesus. Uh, the crowd, and the crowd probably consisted of Jews from all over Israel and even all over the then known world as they would come to Jerusalem for the feast, the crowd probably is accusing Jesus of having demon-induced paranoia. In other words, they believe that mental illness, like a paranoia kind of thing, is caused by a demon. And since they didn't know that their leaders were trying to kill Jesus, they're going, man, this guy is a little off. He's, he's saying that they're trying to kill him. Who's trying to kill him? And they accuse him of having a demon. Jesus responds... By referring back, when he says, I did one work, he's referring back to chapter 5. You'll remember there that he went to the pool of Bethesda and he healed that man who had been lame for all of his life. And he did it on the Sabbath, deliberately. And on the Sabbath, deliberately, he told him, take up your pallet and walk, which just infuriated the Jews. That wasn't in the Old Testament. There's no law that says you can't pick up your mat and walk on the Sabbath. But they had devised all of these rules and regulations and laws. And um, so they said Jesus is violating the Sabbath. And as a result of that one deed, the Jewish leaders were seeking to kill Jesus. So that's the background. Now, if you have an NIV or a, an ESV, they dodged a difficult problem in their translation because they leave out in verse 22, it's in the Greek, for this reason, Jesus says, for this reason, Moses has given you circumcision. Now, 
Admittedly, it is not exactly easy to understand what's the connection. What, what is the flow of thought here? But it seems to me that it's something like this. Jesus is saying, uh, the reason that Moses gave you the law that requires circumcising a baby on the eighth day, even if the eighth day happens to be on the Sabbath, is he was pleading my cause in advance. Um, in other words, Moses, by giving the law that you circumcise a baby on the eighth day, knowing that sometimes that's on the Sabbath, Moses was requiring that you break the Sabbath law in the same way that I broke the Sabbath. You talk about circumcision, which uh, cleanses a man in part of his body, but I healed an entire man on the Sabbath, and yet you're upset with me. That seems to be the flow of thought here. But the point is, Jesus did these miraculous works. And nobody can do miraculous works if he's not a true teacher. Nicodemus said to Jesus in John 3, 2, No one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. True. Or in John 9, we'll see the man born blind whom Jesus healed tell the, the hostile Jewish leaders, If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. True. Or even Jesus himself interacts with the hostile Jewish leaders in John 10, 37 and 38, and says, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And so we have these four solid reasons why Jesus is the true and righteous one. He was sent by the Father. Uh, he, he taught God's truth. He sought God's glory. And he did God's miraculous works. And so you have to say, well, with all of that evidence, why didn't everybody believe in him? Well, John shows us. People reject Jesus in spite of who he is because of their many sins. And there are five sins here in our text that I want to touch on that caused these religious Jews. Again, these were religious people. These were not pagans, but they rejected Jesus because of these sins. First of all, people reject Jesus in spite of who he is because they value the wrong things. In verse 15, they're valuing their rabbinic training. We have the degrees. We went to the accredited schools. This man is uneducated. And so, because of valuing the wrong things, they reject God's very source of truth. You know, I, I went to seminary, and there's value in seminary. I'm not despising it. But there's a danger in seminary. And the danger is this. There's an academic arrogance about the place. You know, we have the truth here. We know God's Word. We know Greek and Hebrew and theology and church history. And you can just, it just kind of reeks of it sometimes in, in those places. And uh, we need God's Word, but we need to value the right things. Now, the Jewish rabbis, they would always teach by citing other rabbis. Rabbi so-and-so says, rabbi so-and-so says. Jesus, remember the Sermon on the Mount? 
You have heard it said, but I say unto you, he repeats that over and over. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29 says, When Jesus had finished teaching, finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. And so the point is, there's nothing wrong with academic degrees. They can be of great benefit. But the issue is, if we start valuing that, and we don't listen to a man of God who may be a very worldly, uneducated man, but yet a man who truly knows God, we're going to miss Jesus. Back in the uh, 1600s, there was a man named John Bunyan. He wrote a famous book. In fact, it's the second best-selling book in history, Pilgrim's Progress. I hope you've all read it, and if you haven't, that you will read it this year and read it again. Spurgeon read it through every year. Um, Bunyan, though, was uneducated. He was a tinker. You know what a tinker was? A tinker went around fixing pots and pans, going door to door. You got any broken pots and pans? He would mend them. Well, on one occasion, the king of England said to John Owen, John Owen was the vice chancellor of Oxford, very educated Puritan theologian who wrote wonderful um, erudite books. But he said, um, how can you go and listen to a tinker pray? Because Owen would go and listen to John Bunyan preach. And John Owen replied, he said, uh, may it please your majesty, could I possess the tinker's ability for preaching, I would willingly relinquish all my learning. If you've never read, read Bunyan, by the way, he has some wonderful books besides Pilgrim's Progress. One of them is called The Jerusalem Sinner Saved. And he, he develops a whole book based on that verse in Luke 24 where Jesus says, uh, you guys are to go out and preach this gospel of repentance for the forgiveness of sins beginning in Jerusalem. And Bunyan picks up on that one phrase, beginning in Jerusalem, and he, he develops the wonderful theme that Jesus aims the gospel first and foremost at the worst sinners because it was in Jerusalem that the Savior was crucified. And Jesus rightly could have said, forget Jerusalem. Those guys are reprobates. Go elsewhere. But he says, begin. Begin in Jerusalem. And Bunyan develops that saying, are you a terrible sinner? Come to Jesus. There's forgiveness. There's mercy. It's just wonderful stuff. So I encourage you to read Bunyan. But the point is, we value the wrong things, we'll miss Jesus. Secondly, people reject Jesus in spite of who he is. Because they're not willing to obey God. We already saw that in verse 17, but let me just go over it briefly again. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it's of God or whether I speak from myself. Now, Jesus is saying here, the reason that people do not recognize him for who he is doesn't hinge on having enough evidence. It hinges on not having enough obedience. If you want to know who Jesus is, obey him. Obey him. Augustine put it this way. Do not seek to understand in order to believe, but believe that you may understand. In other words, if you come to the Bible as a scoffer, you're going to go away from the Bible as a scoffer. If you come to the Bible with a humble heart saying, God, I'm messed up. I don't know what I'm 
doing. I, I need wisdom. I need to know you. God, I want to follow you. He will reveal himself to you. You know, that's just a basic principle in human relationships, isn't it? If somebody comes to you and they're angry and they're in your face, do you just open up and share your heart with them? No, you put them off. You put them off. On the other hand, if somebody comes to you and they're humble and they're looking to you for wisdom and they're, they're wanting to know what you have to say, you're going to open up more. Jesus shared that in John 14:21. He said, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. And then notice this last part. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. So if you want Jesus to disclose himself to you, keep his commandments. Have an obedient heart. Thirdly, people reject Jesus in spite of who he is because they're legalistic hypocrites. We see that in verse 19. Uh, These Jewish leaders pride themselves on obeying the Mosaic law, and yet glaringly, Jesus unmasked them here because, verse 19, didn't Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Uh, These scribes and Pharisees were incredible. You ever bring home uh, a can or jar of um, Morton's salt and pour it out and go, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine for me, one for God. They did that. They tithed their spices. Incredible. And yet they missed the weightier provisions of the law. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 23. And here they are. We want to obey the feast. We want to keep the law. We want to do all these outward things. And they're trying to kill the sinless Son of God. It's amazing. Amazing. Legalism is when people, and and we still do it, we're all prone to this sin, we pick through the Bible for the parts of it that we can obey outwardly to other Christians, and we put on our righteous suit and come to church, but we're not dealing with the sin in our heart. And it's so silly, because God knows every private thought you and I have. Everyone. Every thought. And if we want to walk with God... We not only need to obey the external things, we need to judge sin on the thought level. Things like pride and greed and lust and and anger and jealousy and selfishness and all these things. Because, again, you can put on the righteous front at church and impress everyone, but it doesn't impress God. God looks on the heart. And so people reject Jesus um, in spite of who he is because... They value the wrong things. They're not willing to obey God. They're legalistic hypocrites. But fourthly, maybe this is the most serious, they reject Jesus in spite of who he is because they're under satanic influence. And I'm basing that on verse 20. The crowd may have been ignorant of the teachers, the Jewish leaders wanting to kill Jesus. Um, and giving them the benefit of a doubt. They're not saying he's demon-possessed in the sense we might say that of some sort of a crazy maniac, but they probably thought mental illness is demonically induced, and this guy's off his rocker. He's paranoid. And so they say you have a demon. But I'm going to say this. 
Anytime you charge the true and righteous one, the sinless son of God, by saying he has a demon, you are the one who is under demonic influence, not Jesus. It's interesting in John's gospel, he doesn't have any examples, as the other gospels do, of Jesus casting out demons, but he has several examples of people accusing Jesus of being demonically uh, possessed. Uh, John tells us this in 1 John 5.19. We know that we, he's talking about believers, we are of God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Paul, Paul in speaking of unbelievers who um, are perishing, says this in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, in whose case the God of this world, he means Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, and then don't gloss over this next phrase, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Christ is glorious. And that's at the heart of the gospel, that we see the glory of Christ. And that's what John is trying to unfold throughout this whole book. He says, we beheld his glory, and I want you to behold his glory so that you will believe in Jesus. But people can't because Satan has blinded them. So they don't see the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so when we share the faith, we have to silently be praying, Oh God, open blind eyes. Otherwise they won't see who Jesus truly is. So people reject him then because they value the wrong things. They reject him because they're not willing to obey God. They're legalistic hypocrites. Uh, they're under satanic influence. And then finally people reject Jesus in spite of who he is because they judge according to outward appearances. Verse 24, Jesus exhorts these scoffers, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. You can translate that verse, stop judging according to outward appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So in other words, they're judging Jesus outwardly because they say, he healed a man on the Sabbath, and that's against our Sabbath laws, and therefore he ought to die. It's superficial judgment based on external things, not based on the true understanding of God's word. Um, and yet, at the same time, they're trying to kill Jesus, the righteous and true one. I think one of the most misunderstood verses in all the Bible is Matthew 7, 1, which says, uh, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Unbelievers know that verse almost as well as they know John 3:16. I was once on a jury. The, the woman who was being tried had double the legal limit for alcohol. And we get into the jury deliberation. I thought, this will be a slam dunk. She's guilty. And we had one woman on the jury who said, oh, I believe, judge not, lest you be judged. And I couldn't barely, I couldn't judge this woman. And I thought, what a misapplication of the Bible. Of course we are to judge this woman. If you just read a few verses later, Jesus says, do not cast your pearls before swine. He's not talking about pigs. He's talking about people who are swine. And obviously, to judge someone a swine, you have to make a judgment. Or just a few verses after that, he says, Beware of wolves who come into your flock in sheep's clothing. 
again, you have to be very discerning to say, that's not a sheep, that's a wolf. Uh, So we have to make judgments. The Bible commands us to be discerning about false teachers and about demonic activity. So the point is here, if you judge Jesus superficially, you'll end up rejecting him as he really is. Now, that's an important point because I encounter Christians, professing Christians today, who judge Jesus superficially, and they do it this way. I don't believe in a Jesus who judges. I believe in a Jesus who's loving and gentle and kind, and, you know, he's nice all the time. You want to say, what Bible do you read? I mean, read Matthew 23, where seven times Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, you phonies. And he lays into them. Now, don't misunderstand. Whenever Jesus is confronting sin, he is doing it because he loves you. Because sin destroys. And if you love someone, you don't let them destroy themselves. But, you see, the point is, again, if you're a Christian... You don't judge Jesus superficially as the world does. You read the Bible, and in the Bible, Jesus frequently confronts my sins and your sins. And I can say this, if you are not letting the Bible confront your sins, you're not walking with Jesus. That's just part of growing. You you read a verse that you would swear wasn't there the last time you read the Bible, and it stomps all over your toes, and you go, oh, man, i got to deal with that in my life. That is the loving Lord using the Word to cleanse us, to, to make us more like Jesus. Now, that brings me back to verse 17 again. If you want to know who Jesus is, if you want to know Jesus is the righteous and true one sent by God, you have to be willing to obey God's Word. You have to be willing to do God's will. Soren Kierkegaard, the famous uh, Danish philosopher, wrote, It is difficult for us to believe because it is difficult for us to obey. So obedience is at the heart of faith. And if you're willing to obey God and come to his word, read the Gospel of John, say, God, I need to know Jesus. Show me that he's true and I'll obey him. He will show you. And you'll see Jesus as the righteous and true one. And he's worthy of all your trust. I exhort you, I plead with you, if you don't know Christ, trust in him. Let's bow before him. Father, thank you for this portion of your word where we get a glimpse into the glory of Christ. Thank you that you inspired John to write this down for our benefit. I pray that no one here would shrug it off. That we would all go deeper. That we might know Jesus as the one who is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. And that he taught your truth. And that if we disagree with him, we're in deep trouble. So I pray, Lord, if there are any here who have never trusted in Jesus as Savior, that you would open their eyes to see his glory, that they would put their trust in him alone as the Savior they need from sin and judgment. And Lord, I pray for your children, 
your sheep. We all have inadequate views of Jesus to some degree. I pray that you would open our eyes to see more of his glory, that we would submit more of our lives to him, that we would be holy even as you are holy. And use us in this world, Lord, to be the light in darkness that people need. For Jesus' sake, amen. We are going to conclude our...